um, he has to be uh, eternally existing. So that's that's the one hand. He's got to be eternally existing. The the son must have always been the son if he's of the same substance with the father. Um, but as long as he's son, he has to have been begotten. Um, and, and one of the things I think sometimes when people get in trouble is they they lean too heavily into the the kind of human side of of that analogy. We we hear begotten and we think well. Well, when a man and a woman love one another and get married, then they have a baby, and that that process by which they uh, she becomes pregnant is the is the beginning, say, or the having the child is the beginning. Uh, so you have to. This is a point where I think where we have to cleanse our imaginations profoundly, um, and this is a place where, particularly in the ancient world, where where polytheism is much more up and running as an option, um, and where something closer to a human beginning is often how actually you get gods and demigods. Um, but this is a this requires a thoroughly cleansed imagination. There, there is no uh, female deity in the picture. There's no um, prior coexistent thing with which God cooperated to bring into birth the Son. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important questions that any Christian could answer, I would say one of the most important questions to the Christian faith as a whole is this, why did God become man? Well, if you've looked into church history or read any of the church fathers, patristic or medieval, you may remember that this question comes up a number of times, and it's really famously articulated by that medieval church father, Anselm. But did you know that Athanasius, the patristic father, also answered this type of question, why did God became man? But what's so unique about Athanasius, and what I love about his answer, is he doesn't just focus on salvation. But in order to substantiate salvation, he goes back into eternity to identify who this son is, this son of God who takes on human flesh and becomes incarnate, who this son of God is from all eternity within the inner life of God, or what we would call the imminent trinity. And as Athanasius does so, he not only looks at Scripture, but starts to theologically reason his way through the Son of God and his eternal identity over against the Arians and many, many others who were challenging the, not just the deity of the Son, but the, the doctrine of the Trinity as handed down to Athanasius. And so Athanasius focused on the Son as the only begotten Son of God, begotten not by grace or will, but by nature. He also focused on the Son as immutable, even impassable. And as he turned his attention to the incarnation, he would introduce phrases, words and phrases like incorruptible and argue that unless the Son is incorruptible, well, his incarnation then Well, it's an impossibility, and he cannot then ensure that we 
are incorruptible one day as well. Well, these are complicated issues, but Athanasius labored hard and it many times put his neck on the line to try to untangle them and to articulate them to not only defend the Nicene Creed, but to actually preserve Christian orthodoxy as he understood it. I've asked Matt Jensen to come on the Credo podcast and to introduce us to Athanasius and specifically what Athanasius has to say in books like On the Incarnation. Matt Jensen is Associate Professor of Theology in the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University. He's the author of several books. Uh, One of his most recent books is Theology and the Democracy of the Dead, A Dialogue with the Living Tradition, published by Baker Academic. Matt, thank you so much for writing this book, and thanks for coming on the Credo Podcast. It's my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I assume that probably a number of our readers are familiar with a figure like Athanasius, but it doesn't hurt, um, and and perhaps some of our, our listeners are not familiar, so it doesn't hurt for us to maybe just, uh, before we get into some of these difficult theological questions, to just back up a second and and just remind ourselves who Athanasius is. You know, he's one of those figures that mm-hmm. uh, everyone talks about, but uh, I, I would probably guess few have actually read. Uh, maybe mm. you could just start off by introducing what's going on in the fourth century that makes someone like Athanasius such a pivotal, pivotal figure. Yeah, that's that's great, and it's uh, boy, it it is dense, but it helps to get just a little familiarity. Um, it's a funny time because it's really it's really the first time that Christians are starting to come into their own at a societal level. So you get, uh, and it's a it's a controversial thing, the question of what happens when Emperor Constantine uh, becomes converted, but something happens, and so in the fourth century, you you get a Roman Empire that that all of a sudden becomes at first more tolerant. Of and open to Christians, and and finally sanctions uh, Christianity as a as a state religion. And so, Athanasius is coming up in this time when Christianity uh, tends to have more influence, or at least it becomes uh, something more than just an embattled, persecuted minority. So that's that's a big backdrop thing. Um, but it's also a time where, um, where particularly when it comes to who who Jesus is, also later in the century, who the Spirit is. Um, you're, you're getting uh, a sense of the need to get a kind of uh, conceptual precision to that that hadn't been there before. Um, now, I, th- I think we have to be really careful when we say conceptual precision. It's not that in the fourth century, the church finally figured out who Jesus was. The Christians have known who Jesus is from the very beginning. Um, uh, that's what eternal life is. It's to know uh, the Father and Jesus Christ whom the Father sent. And so, so Every Christian, Christian after Christians, they were coming to know God and Jesus as they were being baptized, joining the church and being filled with the Spirit. They, they knew Jesus, but, but conceptually, um, there was a lot of uh, slipperiness and sloppiness. And, and it makes sense because you're, you're trying to name the way in which this human being who lived a few hundred years earlier was also God. Uh, and I mean, the minute we say that, we, our, our mind kind of bends over backwards. Um, trying to make sense of it. So you, you get that. And and the Council of Nicaea in 325 offered what is what continues to be um, the definitive kind of early statement, which is that the, whatever else father and son are, um, they are uh, of one substance, of one essence, of one being. Um, 
not of a different, not even a similar. It's, it's not even that the father and the son are incredibly similar, um, but we need to confess that they are of one substance. And that's his Greek word. This is the only Greek will do. It bugs me, by the way, when <laughs> when pastors and even when theologians um, dip much into Greek in their writings, um, because the vast majority of people aren't going to uh, be able to learn Greek. I don't even know Greek, actually. I, I had a funny route in my own education. Um, everyone who's an academic has got gaps. And one of mine, actually, is I don't know Greek. But there is this Greek word um, in which the father and the son are said to be homoousion, but they're, they're of the same substance. That was the decision made um, at Nicaea. And bishops kind of voted on it. Um, but that doesn't mean that they had a profound understanding of what it meant or what its implications were, or that they were fully uh, on board. You know, you get all, all sorts of time, I and mean, we see people making decisions in this recent election. Um, so people vote for all sorts of reasons and with all sorts of levels <laughs> of conviction. So you have these bishops who said, yes, we do think the Father and the Son are of one substance. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when, when that actually sort of, uh, the, the ensuing decades after that, um, that actually became a very uh, controversial and embattled concept. Mm-hmm. And Athanasius, more than anything, he can be known as the one who defended both the term, but even more what the term implied, um, you know, for, for decades to come. He was exiled five times mm-hmm. um, and, and was often, you know, people would use this Latin phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because there were times when it seemed that he was uh, the lonely voice uh, crying in the wilderness that no is essential um, that the father and the son are of one substance or of mm-hmm. one being. Um, it's also worth saying that he was a, you know, he had the kind of temperament and style that was required to do that kind of work. Um, right. So it, in the literature on Athanasius, you know, you have lots of people who want to speak of the saintly defender of the truth. And I think that's a, that's a, a right thing to recognize and others who want to draw attention to the fact that he was a bit of a thug. Um, he certainly <laughs> wasn't above, above a fight in the name of Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, so he, he, yeah, he wasn't above that. He's definitely the kind of guy who, the kind of cowboy who's willing to stand um, by himself uh, in the name of uh, Christian truth. So I hope that helps a little bit to orient things. Yeah. You know, I, I, at one point um, he's even referred to at times as kind of a modern gangster, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I thought that was hilarious when I came across that. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, that was that was really good. That really puts Athanasius in perspective. Um, you yeah. know, one of the the things that I mean, there's so many different ways that Ath- Athanasius goes about that fight, as we're calling it, um, in order to yes, defend, but as you mentioned, even just try to clarify and, and start articulating, especially after Nicaea, in which there's this general mm-hmm. affirmation, but there's all kinds of confusion. And so uh, as he begins to clarify right. and articulate exactly what that means, um, one of the things that, that comes to the surface is, well, there's this tension that Athanasius and you know we could think of others like the Cappadocians start to address between theology proper, our doctrine of God, and mm-hmm. the incarnation itself. And this was certainly a, a stumbling block for someone like Arius. You know, Arius would look at mm-hmm. uh, would look at the doctrine of God and say, well, if God is immutable, if God is impassable, if he's incorruptible and so on, then then he just could not conceive of the son then um, 
the Son being of the same substance, let alone begotten from the same substance yeah. eternally as the Father. Yeah. Um, when we maybe we could just focus on each of these. Let's take immutability, for example. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the classical tradition. Um, and early on, Athanasius seems to be operating out of this tradition, uh, speaks of God as uh, one who is unchanging. Uh, later, that mm-hmm. tradition would use language like pure act to describe uh, to mm-hmm. describe this God and kind of safeguard him from being uh, affected in a negative way by, uh, say, change or mutation uh, or suffering or so on. Um, as Athanasius looked at the incarnation, how did he simultaneously hold on to, say, God's immutability? So saying that, you know, God is, isn't someone who is in, always in the process of becoming something else, as if he becomes lesser or greater. Mm-hmm. And at the same right. time, uh, turn to the incarnation and explain how the Son of God uh, becomes man, or is enfleshed, or assumes flesh. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. And I hope, by the way, I hope your listeners, Matthew, uh, realize the good stuff you've written on this as well. You've had written some really rich explorations of uh, these attributes and perfections of God, um, and that's what we're getting to the heart of here. I mean, this is just the issue. You have biblical language. Um, you know, you, so for instance, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. On the one hand, you've got maybe a, a Platonist heritage that says whatever a God is, a God never belongs to the realm of becoming. Any God that's worth its salt is a God who just is. He is mm. the, in the realm of being. Um, and Platonism is, is mostly just a good word for the church fathers. This is the kind of the, the best philosophical milieu they could find to make sense of, of who God was. Um, but you have there a sense that, you know, the, the true God has got to belong to the realm of being and can never become. Mm. And yet then you have the biblical language that says the word became flesh. Yeah. And, and this long, long uh, testimony in scripture to God's involvement um, with his creation. I, I was just in Exodus with students this last week, and we're just looking at the, the sort of the strong emotions of God and the apparent uh, mind changes of God and, and all the ways he acts in a way that, um, though far beyond human, feels very recognizable to us as the way a certain a person would ask. Mm. Um, I think I think the key thing for someone like Athanasius, um, I think the way to put it is to say uh, two things I'd say. One is that your language of simultaneity is so important that, that the best way to capture what God has done in Christ is to say two things of, what, of one person, yes, Jesus, but to t- say two things of him. Um, and often those things will, will be said paradoxically. So uh, Cyril, another Alexandrian, Cyril of Alexandria, will just say that the impassable God suffers. Um, and so he says a God who can't suffer, suffers. The impassable is in can't suffer. Um, you could say just as well, the immutable God changes. Um, and the last word in that sentence doesn't undo the second word. So when the immutable God changes, the, the change there doesn't make him suddenly mutable. It, it just means we have to say these two things. Um, and, and then the second thing I think I'd say is that this, this gets at um, the utter transcendence of God. Um, Karl Barth in the 20th century will pick this up. He'll go some weird directions, but, but he'll make much of this, that, that God's immutability is so 
transcended. God is so immutable that he can become. And, and that's, a, that's a scandal for a full-blown Platonist. A full-blown Platonist says, no, 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 no. He's stuck up there, if, we, if you want to use up and down language. He can't come down to the realm of becoming. And, and Christians come along and say, no, no, no. If God really is as we've come to know him in Jesus and in the whole scriptural revelation, he is so transcendent, the creator of all, is so immutable, so not subject to the, the mutable categories of creation, that if he wants to, he can even become one of the categories of creation. He can even show up in space and time as a human being and experience all of the kind of change that goes along with that, yet while remaining immutable. And, and you kind of shuttle back and forth between the immutable one who changes or the impassable one who suffers. Um, but the key is that you kind of have the, the courage of your convictions to continue to lean into both of those things and see that, have you, as you put it, the, the, uh, the eminent God is able to do these things in his economy precisely because of who he is in eternity. Mm. Um, so it's, it's God's very unchanging nature that allows him to change in time uh, in Christ, that allows him to become uh, flesh and then experience all of the, the changes of flesh. At one point, uh, this is in his book on the incarnation. Athanasius says this: mm-hmm. not not even his birth from a virgin, therefore, changed him in any way, nor was he defiled by being in the body. Rather, he sanctified the body by being in it. Yeah. And uh, I love what you say. You you kind of comment on this, and you you then mention the son does not change. Uh, the son does not himself undergo change, but rather changes the flesh by hallowing it in his coming. And then you 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 bring in this uh, beautiful biblical imagery of temple imagery to talk about how God's presence always sanctifies. And when we look at the incarnation, his hallowing presence renders the body a temple. And of course, there's all kinds of you know mm-hmm. biblical reasons for uh, for saying that. So kind of building mm-hmm. off of what you've said, how when we turn to, say, you know, John's language, you think of like John 1 and how he then introduces, moves from this eternal word to then the incarnation itself, how does mm-hmm. this, for lack of a better word, the, the fleshiness of the Son, how does this then, uh, I mean, it's a mystery, but how does this then kind of give us some type of insight into what it means for the son to simultaneously remain immutable, but then by virtue of his humanity and and the miracle of this incarnation, there's a type of, as you call it, hallowing here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that's great. And there's so many ways we could go with that. So I, I love that you picked, picked up that quote from Athanasius too, because it's, it gets at the primary direction of, uh, of causation, you could say, um, in the incarnation, which is that God is doing something uh, to flesh rather than flesh doing something to God. Um, but he's so deeply inhabiting it. So if, if we think back to um, the tabernacle or the temple, um, yeah, on the one hand, you could, you could talk about God entering the flesh and you could you could treat the flesh fairly lightly because you're saying yeah but this is still god um, so there's a way to see that as um and, and the tradition at times will even talk about the the flesh as as the instrument of the son of god or or use that kind of instrumental language but but if you think about it in terms of uh the temple or the tabernacle 
this becomes God's earthly home. Um, not in a way that sacrifices his omnipresence. He's still God everywhere, present everywhere. But, but it's sort of if we're, if we're, uh, if we're to look for God, um, if you're Israel and you're looking for God, you, you look to the temple where he is uh, said that he will put his glory and his name or his presence will dwell um, between the cherubim. And so a similar thing in the incarnation, um, but in the sort of most saturated sense possible, if you want to look for God in the created world, you look for him in Jesus um, because he's, uh, and again, even, even as I'm saying that, I'm realizing the insufficiency of that. So that's interesting. Mm. Jesus is, is the new temple. Um, but even to speak of, speak of his presence in Jesus is a, is a little suspect if we forget that his pre, he is present as Jesus as well. So that, that Jesus isn't even only like the most spirit-filled person of all time, but he is the enfleshed son. So that, so that this is one of the persons of the Trinity who now has this fleshly form. So um, even the in language, you start to see the, the limitation of that. If you, if you don't recognize um, that this is God in person, not just God in a person, uh, you could miss it there. So that's a little bit. I wonder what, what you think in response or other ways we could take that. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is this is where it, you kind of hinted at this. This is where our words just tend to fail us in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I, I've thought about how I've tried to articulate this, especially in the classroom. Uh, it's just so, so difficult. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's hard to improve on Athanasius's words there uh, when he says, yeah. you know, when, when he says that uh, on the one hand, he doesn't change, um, he's not defiled, uh, but then on the other hand, he's not defiled by being in the body. Um, mm-hmm. he, he sanctified the body by being in it. I, I think that move by Athanasius towards the concept of sanctifying is helpful because I think sometimes the assumption uh, is that, well, if he be, if there's any sense in which he is now incarnate, then then that must imply some type of corruption, right? And of course, yeah, that would just yeah. that would just be the death of you know so many attributes of God, not just holiness, but immutability yeah, and passability yeah. and and so many others, aseity yeah. and and so on. Yeah. So I I think that. You know, and we see this. You know, we're coming up on on Christmas here, but we see this uh, when we open the Gospels. I think you know when we start mm-hmm. to see the language that the Gospel writers are choosing to use, they tend to choose this type of language. And I, mm-hmm. I think maybe Athanasius is onto something there. Yeah, and, and it occurs to me too that there's something about the um, we'd want to add. It, this is not just a. Uh, it's not only a, a sort of static uh, sanctifying of the flesh or hallowing of the flesh. Um, so here you could have kind of an actualistic set of categories and you could say, well, not only does he, does the, the incarnating moment itself sanctify the flesh, but then Jesus enacts the ongoing sanctification and hallowing of the flesh by the course of his life lived. And of course, ultimately in offering his flesh as a holy sacrifice to the father, um, but also just in all of the ways that as the Lord, he lives a faithful human life. So I think about even, even like things like the Garden of Gethsemane or, or even his, something like his, his mourning the death of his friend Lazarus. He's, um, so he's doing things in which um, 
to you, if we speak non-technically, we could say, well, he's just suffering. He's going through hard stuff. He's, he's weeping. Um, he's uh, enduring temptation in the garden, temptation to turn away from the mission of the Father. But as he does it faithfully, this, this one who is the eternal son faithfully living a human life, all of that is this, this sanctifying uh, of the human life. Um, Irenaeus wants to say, actually, that, that Jesus must have lived to at least 50 because Jesus needed to go through the process of, uh, of redoing humanity faithfully through each of its stages of life. And to his mind, 50 was when you reached the final stage of life. And I think that's, that's probably too uh, formulaic. But, but there's something <laughs> there about the way in which that howling happens over the whole course of Jesus's life, mm-hmm. as well as in the moment of the incarnation. Yeah, and, you and know, I just love that. I, I mean, I love that. I love that in the midst of that kind of gripping struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's when he's sweating, as it were, drops of blood. That this is a hallowing of the very flesh in which he's doing it. You know, for our listeners, you know, who are trying to maybe locate Athanasius, we we probably should should also qualify here. You know, Athanasius is you know living in the early fourth century. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, he's, it's going to be uh, the next century in which uh, the Council of Chalcedon meets and assembles and um, really standing on the, on the shoulders of individuals like Athanasius, but many others as well, the Cappadocians, for example. Uh, this Chalcedon, this uh, creed of Chalcedon, as we could call it, um, that will very precisely and carefully try to um, navigate, you know, some of these complex issues to to describe. Okay, how how does this one person of Christ have two natures that are that are not divorced from each other? So they want to avoid mm-hmm. heresies like Nestorianism, but at the same time, not not confused or or mixed with each other, mm-hmm. so that they lose their identity and integrity. And in yeah. many ways, you know, whether it's immutability or impassibility, um, Chalcedon seems to be carefully defining those two natures so that, uh, you know, the, the attributes of, say, the divine nature or the attributes of the human nature that you just described, neither one of those are, are compromised. And I, that may be the yeah. biggest hurdle, I think, when we come to the, the modern era, as we start to see one mm. of those natures compromise. But this is, this is maybe the, the genius of, of uh, you know, your work, Matt, is uh, it takes us back beyond the modern era to individuals like Athanasius, who actually mm. were, were, you know, they may have still been working through some of these issues, but they were very carefully trying to parse out you know, how, how the, the eternal Son of God could become incarnate. Now that yeah, said, yeah. That's that said, uh, you know, when we talk about you know this being the the eternal Son of God who's incarnate, that does bring us back to eternity and to really the the doctrine that you know a council like Nicaea uh, just so carefully articulated, which is the doctrine of eternal generation or the eternal mm-hmm. begetting of the Son uh, from the mm-hmm. Father. Now. Uh, you know, I say this in the, the, you know, we're in the 20th century and uh, it's no secret that, um, you know, not just attributes like immutability or impassibility or simplicity, but also doctrines like eternal generation have been thrown into question or, or doubted at points. 
Uh, for example, uh, some will object to eternal generation and say, well, this is, it's really uh, incoherent. Uh, how can, mm-hmm. how can, you know, even the, the phrase itself, eternal and generation seems like, um, you know, that's, that's an impossibility. Uh, did Athanasius have, let's just say we, we, you know, bring Athanasius back into the 20th century here. Um, what, what do you think he would say given, you know, you've, you've explored so many of his writings, you know, against the Arians on the incarnation and others. What do you think Athanasius would say to that type of objection? Yeah, I think that has to be a, uh, well, first of all, he's going to, he's going to affirm eternal generation, uh, Absolutely. He's got a line here and I'm just, just looking at the book with you where he says, uh, he says, who, who so considers the son and offspring rightly considers him also as co-essential. Um, so the son is both an offspring, the, the son of the father, but he's co-essential. And because he's co-essential, I think the key thing there, and that co-essential is just a, a an English translation for homoousian. and he's of the same substance. Um, or admit it's not a translation, but it's, it's a near identical term. Um, if he's of the same substance, um, he has to be uh, eternally existing. So that's, that's the one hand. He's got to be eternally existing. The, the son must have always been the son if he's of the same substance with the father. Um, but as long as he's son, he has to have been begotten. Um, and, and one of the things I think sometimes when people get in trouble is they, they lean too heavily into the the kind of human side of, of that analogy. We, we hear begotten and we think, well, well, when a man and a woman love one another and get married, then they have a baby. And that, that process by which they, uh, she becomes pregnant is the, is the beginning, say, or the having the child is the beginning. Uh, so you have to, this is a point where I think where we have to cleanse our imaginations profoundly. Mm. Um, and this is a place where, particularly in the ancient world, where, where polytheism is much more up and running as an option. Um, and where something closer to a human beginning is often how actually you get gods and demigods. Um, but this is a this requires a thoroughly cleansed imagination. There there is no uh, female deity in the picture. There's no um, prior coexistent thing with which God cooperated to bring into birth the son. Um, and so son is this. Um, in one sense, it begins as a fairly um, strict and narrow technical term to name the fact that that the one we meet in Jesus comes from the Father from all eternity. Um, so it's the coming from that names the the generation. Um, so so that piece is 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 really, really huge. Um, what else to say there? You know, when you talk about the son being uh, generated or begotten, you know, I, I think that's really helpful how you how you mentioned um, we have to kind of rid our minds of of just assuming you know a, a very univocal uh, you know assumption that well this mm-hmm. is this is occurring just like human generation. I I I, I just remembered a uh, a quote here. I'm paraphrasing, but it's from uh, I think it's from the Baptist uh, theologian John Gill, the um, mm-hmm. where he said. We have to just get out of our minds anything carnal, <laughs> anything yeah, carnal. That's great. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's right. You know, if we were to go back, and, and of course, in your book, you cover fig- all kinds of figures. You know, someone like um, Aquinas, for example, who he his way of of talking about this is to say, 
we need to remember our language and concepts. Well, in our human mind, this we're, we're describing something that is analogical because this is yeah. the infinite deity, uh, eternal deity that we're that we're referring to. Um, I, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but when I when I think of the fourth century debates, you know, you think of kind of just mm-hmm. even towards the beginning, you know, Arius and the, certain Arians who would say, well, the sun is begotten but um it's not it's not by nature it, it's not as if um the son is begotten right. from the father's nature they they couldn't accept that instead they would argue no it it can only be uh say uh by will as if you know what they mean by that is yeah, he's just yeah. a product or or an effect of the father's will and, and so then he's external or 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 they yeah. might say yeah, something like it's by grace. Uh, how, how would, what would right, you say? Right. How, how would Athanasius respond to that type of? Yeah, I mean, I think that means. I, I think there you you just end up with uh, you, you end up with Jesus who is not God, um, and, or you end up with two gods. Mm. Um, because so Athanasius instead wants to think of Jesus uh, as sorry, excuse me, as the son of the son isn't begotten by the will. The son is the will of the father. Mm. Um, so, so, so a lot, and a lot of this just comes back to the fact that, you know, Christians share with Jews, the radical commitment to one God. Um, and so if we're going to add any kind of internal, uh, for the second, I'll call it diversity to that God, it has to can still, still remain this one God. And so as long, and Christians, um, Christians, I think more than any in the ancient world had this radical separation between God and creation. So it's, there, there weren't as, there weren't this kind of vast array of intermediaries that were kind of half divine or a little bit divine. You, you got to pick. You're either cre- creator or creation. You're either God or you're God's world. Mm. Um, and so Jesus has to go on one side. Of the, the son has to go on one side or the other. Um, and if he goes on the side of God, he's got to belong to the one identity of God, to the one being of God. So the, so it's, the requirements are very strict. If there's any sense in which uh, the son comes after the father, even sort of logically after the father, um, then you seem to have lost the sense in which this is one God. Mm. Um, we, even people who are committed to a, an Orthodox Trinitarian account of things need to watch it um, because we're so used to thinking of persons as discrete individuals with their own minds and wills. Uh that we're liable to think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as like three different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even dangers there that will uh, will come close to uh, sacrificing the oneness of God. So it's a, it really is a perennial challenge there. Yeah. Um, but eternal generation was the, the best way, I think, that the, the fathers knew, and I think that we still know, to, to name the fact that there is this ordered relationship in the Trinity. It's Father and Son. Um, and both of those are God, and these two, and ultimately with the Spirit, these three are still one God. We can still confess that that there the God is one. Um, you you kind of have to have eternal generation uh, at that point. It, it keeps there from being the wrong kind of subordination. There, there's an ordered relationship of Father and Son, but because they have been Father and Son from eternity, um, you can't have one without the other, which means they're equal. Mm. Yeah, you know that the the point you just made about 
uh, we oftentimes think of person. We, we, we come to the Trinity and think, oh, they're persons. And so we, we can dangerously just assume, oh, these must be persons like we're persons. <laughs> uh, these, mm-hmm. these must be uh, persons that just kind of you make up a society um, like we're a society. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in last century or two, there's, there's been uh, individuals who've gone kind of that, that social direction. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. if the charge in the, the fourth century was uh, the issue was, okay, how do we counter, you know, a, a type of subordinationism? Maybe more recently mm-hmm. the charge is, well, if, if we start to think of the Trinity as a, society with autonomous individuals who are their own consciousness and will, well, how do we avoid tritheism? So that certainly poses. um, So, so again, yeah, hermeneutics here is really key, isn't it? We come back to, okay, what, what are we assuming when we come to the Trinity? Uh, We have to be Mm -hmm. careful. We're not, you know, kind of reading uh, our own, our own human categories back into the, the eternal God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's always and it's always contextual. So, so there's just um, Catherine Sonderegger is you know is writing the systematic theology right now, and an Episcopalian priest and a and a deep woman of faith, um, and she's just written her second volume on the Trinity. It's like 500 pages, yeah. And she spends about 15 pages on the persons. Mm. Um, and I, at the end of the day, I think that's really really problematic. But but what I think what she's doing is she is so concerned that what you're what you're describing Matthew this kind of notion that the three persons of the trinity are like a society she's so concerned that that has deeply compromised the oneness of god that mm. she's gone back and say let's talk about trinity and almost never talk about person i say like if if the if even the trinity is one can we talk about god's threeness without jumping to persons because persons is language that's been so corrupted. Um, now I, th- I think the problem there is still the language of scripture is the language of the father who has a son um, and, and who is, who is empowered that son and is bound to that son by the spirit. And, mm. and so the f- father son language just, it makes it hard to leave behind. And I think rightly so the personal categories, but yeah. I, but I see her, I, I see the reason for her urgency right, uh, right. in a time in a time when we're liable to think of the father and son like we think of my dad and me. Mm. Um, you know, when we yeah. talk about um, the son and the father, it, it, and this is one of you know you make this point, and uh, I just circled it and underlined it and put a star next to it because uh, you know, Athanasius makes this point too. But um, the way you word it is is really helpful. Athanasius says at one point, uh, and here he's talking about how the Father uh, and the Son are creator of the world, and he he mm-hmm. talks about mm-hmm. how the Father uh, has created the world through his Son, and he says, if and if through him he creates and makes, he is not himself of things created and made, but rather mm-hmm. he is the Word of the Creator God. Now this sentence by Athanasius reminds me of something the Nicene Creed says, or really just the way it transitions, how it starts off talking about how the Son is begotten, He's not made, how He's true God of true God, light of light. It's really stressing that unity, that simplicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then mm-hmm. it, as it transitions, and it talks about the Son also as creator, and then, of course, as redeemer. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's helpful to remember that, well, it's because he's only begotten from the Father's essence that uh, when it Scripture starts to talk in creation language, like you said earlier, it puts the Son on the right side of that <laughs> of that creation. Yeah. Now, you, you say this, you say, apart yeah. from the Son, the Father would not be creator, and apart from the Son, he would likewise not be revealed. So, so maybe we just yeah. pause right there. How does that type of approach to creation and re- revelation, we could probably throw salvation in there too, how does that not undermine but actually affirm and confirm the son's co-equality with the father? Mm. Yeah. Well, do we want to, do we want to do that through cre- the creation lens or the revelation lens? Um, that's a good What's in the Revelation? So, so we can talk about creation a little bit. Um, the, so if you think about Revelation, um, let, let's say Revelation to human beings. We could think about other possible Revelations. Let's, let's go with Revelation to human beings. Um, if the Son uh, does not fully and truly and accurately reveal the Father, then the Father's obscured in darkness. Uh, and the only way for him to fully and accurately reveal him is if he is, if they share the same essence. And the only way we can, um, and I think this, this is profound. If you think about sin, if you think about the nature of sin and how much sin has compromised uh, the way we know things, I mean, all sorts of ways. It's given me a faulty memory. It's, it's made it so that I, uh, I turn knowledge to my own good and in the process skew it. I, I un, unconsciously edit some things out and put forward other things that serve my own interests. Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy how much sin is shot through my own knowing. Um, and so we have this double problem when it comes to knowing God. On the one hand, God is utterly transcendent. He dwells in inaccessible light. He can't be seen as, as God tells Moses. Um, and on the other hand, we've got our sin, which which compromises any kind of knowing we would possibly do. So even when I just seek to know things around me, um, that knowing is tainted by sin and therefore utterly compromised. Um, and what the son does uh, in the flesh is he uh, serves as a perfectly reliable uh, revelation of who the father is because they share the same essence. Mm. Um and so without that, yeah, without that, we are, we're in a hall of mirrors mm. or we're given pieces that might dimly reflect God, but that have kind of, it, Calvin is great on this um, in, in book one of its institutes where he's, he says, kind of affirms with Romans, oh yeah, the knowledge of God is available everywhere in creation. But then he quickly talks about the way that we, we have so distorted that, um, that we need um, to be given the scriptures to see the world aright, and the scriptures are that collection of books which tell us who Jesus is. Mm. Um, and as the Spirit, the Spirit illumines our eyes to read this book, which is a book about Jesus. It's there that we find out who the Father is because He's revealed in His Son. Um, anyway, that's that's a, that's a long winded, but that's, those are some first thoughts on that. We've been talking to Matt Jensen. Uh, he is the Associate Professor of Theology in the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't read uh, one of his books, uh, 
do go and, and pick up a book like uh, Theology and the Democracy of the Dead, uh, you, you not only uh, will be introduced uh, to the major figures of, of what we might call the great tradition from, say, an Athanasius to an Augustine to an Aquinas and so, so many others. But uh, what I love about Matt's work is he, he actually shows you how you can retrieve uh, some of their most important concepts uh, in a way that is especially relevant to theology today and, and even to some of the contemporary challenges that uh, not just theologians, but the church faces today. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. What, what a pleasure, Matthew. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing it. This is a great ministry. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.